Hey, it's Michael. A little heads up before we start. Ten or so episodes ago, we chose to stop self-hosting our own podcast files and use a host that'll scale, provide good stats, and so on. What this means is that we have at least 20 episodes that are still living on my server, and, you know, I'm getting to the point where I'm looking to migrate them over so eventually I can shut that server down. For you, this means that every so often there may be two or more podcasts a week, one that you might have heard before, but I'm going to do my best, especially for the early ones, to make sure they're touched up a little bit. This episode is one of those. It is a total recut of a previous one called The User Experience Part 1. It's from a talk I gave last June where I introduced the idea of talking about user experience as if it were a measurement, which is actually something I just finally put into words in a recent article called How to Talk About User Experience. I think it's a big deal, I think it's kind of important, but rather than podcast a reading of that recent article, I figured this was just a good excuse to dig into the archives and start migrating. Um, So you might remember that in our uh, 2016 design predictions episode, my number one was that we are going to see an explosion of service design content. I hadn't really heard about service design until as recently as winter 2015, but it's so weird. As I was editing this episode, my spiel about thinking about user experience as a measurement leads kind of naturally into a talk about service design. I even use those words. And I guess it makes sense because when we think about UX as a measurement, we are thinking about holistic experiences that transcend the screen, which reflect back at us the quality of the services we provide. So, enjoy. Oh, and uh, stay tuned at the end for a special pseudo-announcement. I'm broadcasting, with permission, part of the audio from a talk given June 3rd called The User Experience, which was really intended to establish a practical vocabulary for demonstrably improving the UX. I kind of find the way that we talk about user experience, focus on crafting capital E experiences, whatever those are, not very practical. Rather, when we talk about the user experience for what it is, it's a measurement, something that can be plotted, predicted, then suddenly UX becomes not so much a thing that we don't have right now and we really, really need to get, but more of a lens through which we can judge um, the quality of the library as it is, um, kind of observe the tangible impact of new services that we try, and of course, remove that stigma of failure from trial and error, and then as a mode of thinking by which we can imagine our future. User experience is the measure of your end user's interaction with your library, its brand, its product, and its services. And what we're talking about is something that we can measure, that can be plotted on a chart um, with quantitative or qualitative data, numbers and anecdotes. And it is a measure we can correlate with the bottom line. So the library's bottom line. It sometimes kind of like sticks in the throat for folks who prefer not to think of the library as a business. So call it the call it the library's mission. But by whatever name we give it, um, we're talking about the way we determine whether our library is successful. It is a circulation numbers. Is it database usage, foot traffic? However, we come to the conclusion an overall user experience that we measure to be poor impacts that bottom line. Your 
card registration, that will suffer if it is a pain in the neck to register for a card, right? Um, it is hard to change these things because of, because of uh, a lot of reasons, but it is easier to enact change if you can make the case that you could get more library cards into people's hands if the barrier to entry wasn't so high. Um, UX is most commonly gut check. To get a good feeling for the user experience of something with three questions. Is it, is it useful? Is it usable? Um, and is it desirable? These are facets that are shared across models and among most of the literature wrapped up with so much meaning that I really want to take time to break them down. Um, but Amanda Etches and Aaron Schmidt wrote a book exactly about this and it's titled Useful, Usable, Desirable, um, Applying User Experience Design to Your Library. And it's chock full of good stuff and they describe the triumvirate like this. Um, useful, useful, desirable, uh, three legs of a stool. If your library is missing the mark on any one of these, it's bound to wobble. This isn't really the whole picture. Rather, user experience is a hive. This, what we're looking at right now, is the standard UX honeycomb that was dreamed up by Peter Morvel. Um, and often when we say user experience, we conflate it with the term usability. But what this honeycomb conveys is that there's actually a lot more going on here, that the conversation should advance beyond just usability. So, um, so at the top we have useful, that a library service has utility and fulfills a need. Usable, the library service is easy to use. Um, desirable, that it is one that people want, appreciate, and enjoy. Findable, that people can find it, and most importantly, navigate it. Credible, that the service inspires trust. And that's one thing that, just as a brief tangent, we can take advantage of. Libraries are maybe one of the last bastions of web app that care about user privacy, right? And accessible, that the library service or application can be used by everyone. Um, these facets can be conceptualized on their own, but each part play a really big role determining the overall value of user experience. It's a holistic view. So libraries are budget or time or talent constraints. So understanding the user experience as a net value of a bunch of different facets lets us pick and choose and prioritize. Understanding user experience as modular and codependent chunks um, means that tweaks here and there nevertheless um, improve the whole is that term that all ships rise with the tide. A library that is accessible, um, it uses good signage, doesn't have a lot of jargon, um, has easy as pie card registration, and it's super easy to check out. Maybe, it doesn't, maybe you have self-checkout. Um, this nevertheless has a positive user experience regardless of if like the carpet is super ugly. The benefits outweigh the negatives. So the other benefit of understanding UX as kind of like a modular chunk of pieces is that it can grow. You can see that there is no real perimeter. If you have a big enough page, you can add or remove facets to this honeycomb. And that's what I did. So this is the spin that I made. I call this uh, the honeycomb of library user experience. Where, like, honestly, I just got a little overly academic about the definition of useful. I had to break that down into two separate things. The big thing that I added was this new thing called utility, and that sort of like replaces the original definition of usable. And it's basically um, that a library service or application fulfills the demonstrable need. And I find that libraries are very much a culprit here. Um, adding services, whether they're something like a blog or 
items in the collection for which there isn't really a demonstrable need. It doesn't mean that they're not nice to have, but they lack an inherent utility. And this is an important distinction. When libraries are budget or time or talent constrained, utility is a, um, it's a distinction that matters. So I redefined usable here to be a library service or application that's easy to use and intuitive. And it's pretty much the same as the last one, but I, I needed to do this because thinking that because a service is easy to use that it inherently thus has a good user experience is a mistake. Um, it's easy to make though. We conflate the two so often because UX and usability testing are so closely, closely aligned, but usability measures the ease and intuitiveness of completing tasks and improving usability often begins by just like removing barriers to entry, removing roadblocks. Poor usability has really terrible repercussions on the bottom line. However the library measures its success, foot traffic, circulation, database usage, library services that are a pain in the neck to use won't. They won't get used. If people are forced to interact with hard to use services because the library is the only game in town, then users form negative feelings that may resurface when they're later asked to donate or vote. So usefulness is the combined value of a service's usability and its utility. Of the many facets determining, of the, of the many facets there are, determining whether a service is useful can hurt some feelings. Um, but we really have to have the courage to um, ask whether our products and systems are useful. One of my favorite um, questions pose, is posed by Aaron Schmidt. Um, so what if your website disappeared? Where he suggests making content decisions based on whether patrons would be calling if your server crashed or your cloud-hosted libguides went down. Picture, in your mind's eye, a library website. You got it? Does it look something like this? <laughs> this, you know, there's a big menu across the top. There's some social buttons. There's a chat box. Um, there's a big search widget. Um, this, this X at the bottom is supposed to be a carousel. Being truthful about the usefulness of this or that aspect of the website brings to surface the reality of user engagement. And it can be a tough pill to swallow, but it turns out to be really, really important, I'm just checking my time, really important medicine because the user experience has a net value, a poor UX, one, let's say, dragged on by clutter, um, difficulty of use, the presence of undesired features, negates the value of even the things that you're doing right. This graph illustrates um, something called the Kano model, which we're going, going to talk about in a second. Um, and this is a customer service tool from the 80s, I think, and it helps you anticipate the return on investment of what you add or you take away from a library service, changes that you make, um, effort that you put into a new program, and so on. It is not true that more features are better because features that have a negative impact can actually create a net, can be like so severe that they create a net negative result. The Kano model is one of the most useful tools which can help you visualize the satisfaction that your patrons get from like a feature or service. And it starts with a grid where the y-axis is the amount of satisfaction a user gets from something. So where the, you know, from from neutral in the middle and up, and of course neutral and down. And the x-axis is the degree of investment that you as 
a library service provider puts into something. As like your investment in something increases, the organization spends a little bit more resources on improving the quality or adding the features. But each new feature hopefully takes more investment, thus returns more satisfaction. So by adding new stuff or cleaning up the quality, we generate more shouts of delight, which are way up there at the top. It just this is useful to see that every service design decision that you make has a performance payoff. The model is meant to be used to anticipate how much delight a new feature will add. A library service has some basic expectations, right? Microsoft Word would suck if it didn't have a save button, right? But you're not, but because it has a save button doesn't make it an excellent product. It's a basic expectation. It has no payoff in the satisfaction, but not having it is going to create a bunch of frustration. In the same way, um, services that we provide, like reference, um, circulation, you know, the website, these have basic expectations. You're not going to get any kudos for putting your hours online, but you'll sure hear about it otherwise. On the upper, on the on the upper end of the spectrum, you have something called like excitement generators. These are attractive features that really set your service apart. It's not needed. Um, not having them aren't isn't going to hurt anybody, but their addition adds a little extra something special, like reviews or ratings in a catalog. There's quite a bit more to the Kano model here, but this is the gist, and it's something that you can sketch like right now. One thing that my chart here doesn't show is how the Kano model actually anticipates that excitement generators over time migrate into basic expectations. Basically, um, the longer that, the more that someone gets used to something that's really cool, the less cool it becomes. Reference services do not need online chat to do what they do. Adding a chat room is kind of like above the call of duty. It's something neat, cool, or convenient until, you know, at my, like at my library, you've offered it for three years, four years. Um, and then it becomes part of what you do. It becomes axiomatic to what reference services is. If you dare to take the chat away, your users are going to feel like your reference services are incomplete. So you can determine what people really care about rather than just you like using your gut feeling by um, talking to the people who use your stuff. That's, a that's one of the principles of UX, you just ask. Um, and for the Kano model specifically, you can use these um, positive, negative question pairs, um, which are related to the two points on the spectrum. The responses, like one through five, I like it, I expect it, I'm neutral, I can tolerate it, I dislike it, are not designed to offer a simple rating, but give you a sense of what people actually expect. Take the Ask a Librarian chat. No, I guess I just wrote it here on my slide. You show them it, and then you say, hey, how would you feel if it was if, it, if we had this? And they'll be like, great, I like it. What, how would you feel if it wasn't there? I, maybe someone will say, oh, I don't really care, or ooh, I can't tolerate it. Let's take our question. So how do you feel about us having Ask a Librarian chat room? The, the horizontal person says, oh, I like having it. Um, and then in the negative question, how would you feel if we take it away? They would tolerate, 
they would tolerate it being there, but it's it's below neutral. It's sort of like a they wouldn't like it if it wasn't present. By the way, this is qualitative data. Um, it's kind of anecdotal. So, um, but it's a graph that you can kind of like sketch out yourself, or you can like pull up in a spreadsheet, and you can present it to the stakeholder. Anecdotes like this are useful for coloring the explanation, but for a little bit more oomph, um, stakeholders often respond better to quantitative quantitative data, the raw facts. So we can also visualize our simple survey like this. Breaking down who our respondents are helps us get a sense of priority. You can use something like detailed user personas, which I'll let you Google in your own time, but they're basically representations of types of your users. The faculty member, the undergrad, the young dad. But you can really get a good enough feeling breaking them down into these three categories that I really like. Um, there are the people who are like the first adopters who perceive a need for this or that. Um, there are the late adopters who are individuals who over time they'll come to use your service and they're going to find it attractive, but it's not necessarily expected. They might not be everyday users or come around until this feature is settled collecting dust. And then there's the non-adopters and these people don't really plan to use your service or care about it or will ever find a need for it. Notice the difference in how the different groups responded to some features. This quantitative quantitative data grabbed the grabs like a stakeholder's attention and the idea is that it should persuade them to reevaluate certain things, including features that the first adopter group disliked. Late adopters and non-adopters found something attractive or somewhat one-dimensional, whereas the first adopters mostly responded to a certain feature as being either unimportant and undesired. And it's not that like late adopters aren't important. Late like late adopters are critical for the overall success of like a feature that you plan if you add something to your reference services or you add something to your website. But it's the first adopters that are um, crucial into just getting it off the ground. So in this way, when you're budget or time constrained and you're looking to create something fast, you pay a little bit more attention to one persona over the other. And this takes us full circle to the definition of user experience design. Basically, we're using all the tools that we have, which includes working with vendors to improve the user experience and interacting with the library. Hey, so about that announcement. 
Sometime really soon, I'm going to be launching a Patreon for LibUX. If you don't know, Patreon is a really cool and safe way to support the free content that you find valuable. All of the articles, the podcasts, their editing for the last two years, and all the ones we've got brewing take loads of time outside of work to crank out. And that's been fine. We do it because we love it. But now, we really want to do more, and there's just not enough free time to carve out, or costs beyond hosting that we can really spare. Just last Monday, we published the first article by a guest writer, Tim Broadwater's value and feasibility piece. And the reason that it's so cool for me is that we made a point way back when that, hey, writing takes a lot of time and work, and it's not completely fair or ethically okay with us to ask people to blog for exposure. So I offer an honorarium for guest writers, UX pros in higher ed or libraries like us. I want to offer more and do it more often, and that's what the Patreon is for. Anyway, keep your eyes peeled. Thanks for all your support. I'll see you next time.